Welcome to The Edge by MGR with your host, David Gill. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Edge podcast by MGR. Your host, David Gill here. I hope everybody's having a fantastic week. As always, I certainly am. This week's episode is a really good one. We haven't done an interview in a little bit. Our last one was with Tyler Cowan, which was great. And this one was just fantastic. It was with Karen Howland. She is a managing director for Circle Up. Circle Up is a $125 million fund based out of San Francisco uh, that invests exclusively in emerging consumer brands, CPG. And so we go all, we talk about all types of CPG stuff from big CPG, how they're failing, what maybe they could do differently, and then all of the opportunities and what emerging brands are doing to basically take advantage of what is the biggest shift in consumer brands that we've seen probably ever. Karen was great. She's very, very smart. Obviously, she knows a ton about the consumer brand space. I know a lot of you guys out there that listen to this are trying to build your own CPG company yourself. So if you are, uh, this interview is definitely for you. Anyways, that's all I've got to say. Let's get into the interview. Hey everybody, I am sitting down with Karen Howland here. She is a managing director for Circle Up, a CPG fund based out of Silicon Valley, San Francisco. Are you based out of San Francisco or? San Francisco, not Silicon Valley. Okay, San Francisco. And uh, yeah, they have a lot of interesting insights. I reached out to them specifically because they're one of the few major funds that is combining tech and CPG. And I just wanted to have a conversation about it in the general CPG space. Before we get started, could you just give us a little background about yourself? Sure, of course. Um, I have been looking at the consumer space for on the investment front for about 15 years now. Uh, A lot of that time was spent in the public markets. Um, But I found over the last couple of years, um, similar to a trend that I think I've heard you talk about before, David, uh, the last couple of years, um, there's been a lot of sameness. There's been a lot of conference calls that talk about cost cutting, that talk about uh, lack of sales. Um, And I thought there might be something a little bit more interesting out there. Uh, And so had the opportunity to work with some small private consumer companies on the consulting front um, and really got hooked into it. Uh, Very excited about the opportunities to work with these companies and help these entrepreneurs. Uh, And then got introduced to Circle Up uh, about a little bit over a year ago um, and have had a chance to uh, the data-driven aspect of the mission as well as the mission to help entrepreneurs thrive um, really spoke to me. So um, been here uh, here ever since and excited to have an opportunity to talk to you about it today. Great. And so Circle Up, in my uh, research heading into this interview, you guys raised $125 million uh, back in 2017, I believe. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. And uh, your main uh, thing, I guess you could say, is Helio, right? Is that the main, you know, I did research, but it's it's kind of a unique <laughs> thing, right? It's kind of like an it algorithm is. or what exactly would you, how would you describe it? Yeah, so we, we actually have two businesses here at Circle Up. We've got the equity business, which is the $125 million fund that you were referring to, mm-hmm. um, which 
the part of the business that I'm on. And then we also have the credit business, which provides working capital loans uh, to early stage early, me, early stage consumer companies. So um, we've got those two businesses, uh, and all of that is driven by Helio. Um, Helio is a data platform that we spent years developing. Uh, it goes out and scans the universe of consumer products and has identified 100, excuse me, 1.4 million uh, consumer brands that are out there. Mm -hmm. And then we have models that are built in that evaluate these brands to try to predict their future success. Um, it helps our investment team make investment decisions. Uh, it also helps our, when we're able to utilize this data to help our entrepreneurs make decisions over the longer term, kind of more bigger strategic decisions. Um, some of the things that Helio looks at, they look at product ingredients. They look at distribution growth how well the product is resonating with the consumer, what engagement is like uh, for the product across the social channels. Um, so a variety of different data points that all feeds into these models that ultimately tries to help us generate the best, the most innovative consumer product product companies out there. When I was, you know, kind of reading, I went to your website and I went through the whole uh, little deck you guys had there about Helio. I had a lot of questions. Obviously, I know, you know, there's probably a lot of things about it that you can't disclose, but, and maybe, maybe you can answer this, maybe not, but how did you guys, or how do you go about collecting all of that data? I mean, there is just so much out there and like you said 1.4 million and obviously i know i'm not sure what you can disclose or not but could you give us maybe a little bit about that yeah of course uh, we actually have three ways that we get the data that kind of fuels helio um one which is uh public market public uh public information that's out there this isn't easily accessible public information though um i mean if you think about this is just one example but you know social media is something i've mentioned before you could go out and look at someone's social media uh, social media presence right now, um, and that's a data point. Right. Looking how that compares to a variety of different companies, looking how that compares to um, that same company over time, all of those things uh, is much more difficult to to get. It's out there, but it's difficult to actually accumulate. And that's you know just one example of of dozens and dozens that we have. Um, so we have public public information that's out there. Uh, then we also have um, partnership information. Uh, so we partner with um, some of the, the big data aggregators out there, uh, which help inform some of our decisions. And then we have proprietary information. We've um, helped fund over 300 companies. Um, we meet with, talk with, have our pulse on what is going on in the industry on a regular basis. So we have a lot of proprietary data that helps fuel this information as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it seemed a very like a very... Um unique approach but something that made a lot of sense like identifying the emerging brands and products and then deciding if you want to invest in those instead of you know maybe the other way around of just taking a million pitches all day long which i'm sure you probably still do some of that as well but uh we do um we do we thankfully um have some some great people who knock wood have uh like the work that we're doing um, and responded well to it and they'll send us referrals, which is always great. We love to get those. Um, but uh, we try to use Helio for a lot of our uh, initial outreach efforts. I mean, I just spent the last week over at Expo West and there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of companies that were presenting. I mean, if I think about the bar category alone, there must have been 200 bar companies that were there. Mm -hmm. To actually get through all the noise and figure out what the best bar company is to actually talk to and to 
build a long-term relationship with and hopefully ultimately back financially is really difficult. And Helio makes that a little bit easier for us. Right, right. So I wanted to take a step back for one second to the big picture CPG and especially talk yeah. about you know, the big CPG companies, the Kellogg's, the Pepsi's, the whoever, right? Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity now almost because of their failings, I guess you could say, or lack of, you know, innovation, which I know you guys have talked a lot about. What are, you know, what are they doing wrong and why Why is there so much opportunity now? What's changed over the past like decade or so? Yeah, you know, this is actually kind of my sweet spot because I uh, I had the opportunity to work with these companies for 15 years, right? And I sat on their conference calls and I talked to the CEOs. These are really big companies. The decisions they're making are focused on creating shareholder value for the longer term, and they're beholden to their shareholders to drive earnings and hopefully the stock price up. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not their only goal and the only thing that drives them, but that's a big piece of it. And there have been a lot of changes that have happened in the industry. If you rewind back 10 to 15 years, international was on fire. You were able to mask the flat to small increases that the U.S. business might have been seeing when your China business was up 100% and your Latin American business was growing significantly. Right. They had a lot of other growth levers to pull, so shareholders were happy. Then Kraft Heinz happened, right? When 3G bought Kraft Heinz with Buffett, all of a sudden people started looking to Kraft Heinz and saw their, that 3G was able to move their margin from kind of the high teens to the 23 to 24% range. That's a crazy move, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone all of a sudden was focused on zero-based uh, ZBB or zero-based budgeting, um, or I mean, effectively cost-cutting. Um, that's a great opportunity, right? You can drive significant earnings growth through margin expansion. If you think about it in a vacuum, if, just thinking about General Mills, and I happened to pull these numbers before our, our call today, because oh, I cool. think they're telling. If you think about General Mills, if they improve their operating margin by 100 basis points, all things being equal, it drives $180 million in profit. Right. That's a big number. You right. need to drive a 6% increase in sales or a billion dollar increase in sales to try to drive that that same $180 million of, of uh, improvement in profit. But I guess the question is, you know, at what long-term future cost does that come with? You know, 100%. Cost that, that cost cutting. 100%. But that's the thing. These companies are have in part because they're shareholders. Um, some of them are not as long-term focused as one would hope. And management teams are compensated on near-term shareholder returns uh, that they are willing to forego kind of some of that long-term vision. Right. Drive, it, the, drive the earnings in the near term and try to drive the stock price in the near term. Uh, and, and so I think that, that was a lot of those, that was a lot of change, right? So then if you fast forward to today, International is still an opportunity for these companies, right? That's not to say that international is flat or down, but the growth opportunities, China's not growing 100%, China's growing 7 to 8%, right? Um, you think about the Latin American market, same thing, right? It's a massive pullback. And they've already cut costs so significantly. So they've taken resources out of their business, resources that should have been, for the longer term, driven, used to drive innovation. But those have now been sucked out of their business, so they're left with a lack of growth and no real way to turn it. And as far as the U.S. goes, you know, obviously you probably are much you know, much more familiar with the numbers, but how are the sales of their, like, older, more legacy <clears throat> products doing now compared to how they did in the past? You know, the classic Coke, Pepsi, you talk about Heinz ketchup, 
you know, things like that. Yeah, they're 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 declining in in pretty significant numbers. I was looking at something the other day uh, that was talking about the cereal category. Um, General Mills and Kellogg, I think, have lost six or seven percentage points market six or seven points of market share combined over the last four years. Those are huge numbers. Those mm-hmm. are huge numbers, um, and it's like that across every category. And of all, okay, so of all the big CPGs, are there any? that are just kind of doing it right? Is it possible for one of these to kind of turn that culture around? The, is it possible? I wouldn't, look, these are smart companies, right? Um, and it, it will take time though, because like the, those numbers that I was saying before, uh, thinking about General Mills, mm-hmm. you need to drive a billion dollars in sales to try to drive the equivalent of one percentage point of margin. So... Right? sort of operating profit improvement. There aren't that many products that you're going to be launching today that are going to be billion dollar products. I mean, we talk about that all the time here. We're underwriting companies to be 100 million, 200 million dollar products. The idea of launching a new product today that's going to be a billion dollars, those are very few and far between. That leads me into a couple questions. But the first one is, uh, are the days of the billion-dollar product, multi-billion-dollar product, like a Pepsi, are those over? Are we ever going to see a new product like that that could do multiple billions in revenue? Never say never, right? I mean, like you have new categories popping up all the time. Uh, kombucha is one right now. Uh, that's I don't. I'm not sure if any any other brands will ultimately end up being a billion-dollar brand, but that's growing very quickly and mm-hmm. has attributes that are significantly better than beer and maybe that's uh, maybe that's a, maybe that could be a uh, category that drives a billion dollar product um i don't think there are going to be many though i don't think there are going to be many i think we're going to have a continued fragmentation of the space we're going to have a lot of brands that are that are in that 100 to 200 million dollar range that doesn't mean that they're not going to be ultimately owned by some of these big cpg companies um but i I think the billion-dollar brands—it's—it's uh, it's going to be hard sledding to get there. Okay. And so the other one was, you know, you talk about General Mills having to add a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, we've been seeing a lot of these big CPGs just acquire a lot of companies and probably overpay quite a bit for a lot of these emerging brands. Do you think that's an effective method, or is that just a? a emergency, we have to do something, move? I think I think you're absolutely right. I think there are a lot of these companies that are, it is hard to generate returns when you pay six, seven, eight times revenue, right? right? It's hard to make that a creative acquisition over the longer term. That said, when your core business isn't growing, you cut as many costs out as you can, or you, you no longer, the offset of sales is the sales declining is offsetting the margin improvement that you might be able to drive. There's not really much else you can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, you, and we've been seeing this more and more, these companies that are launching um, innovative innovation platforms. Uh, Kraft Heinz won, launched one with Springboard, uh, General Mills, 301. And I think those over the longer period will, bene- will benefit those companies, right? Um, but uh, it takes time. One thing I've seen you guys talk a lot about is how a lot of these CPGs historically have only had like 2% of their uh, budgets going towards R&D, which is much lower than, say, any tech company. 
what should be the what would be an appropriate R and D budget uh, for one of these big CPG companies? You think? Ooh, uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I I think the innovation budget, especially given the headwinds that this industry is facing right now, should at least mirror the marketing budget. Wow, I, really? I, I mean, the, that's a lot of their spend. Have, and, and no, I'm not saying I'm not saying that you need to add that. I'm saying you should take a large part of the marketing budget and put it to spend on the R&D budget. Because if you, people who are buying Rice Krispies don't need advertisement for Rice Krispies. Mm-hmm. I guess it helps, right? If you have a new product, a new, I think Coca-Cola actually has done a good job recently with advertising their new flavor profiles and that's effective advertising, right? But Coca-Cola advertising Coca-Cola. Right, like who who else are you gonna question get? question the ROI that that's actually generating. Right. right. Who who's Possibly not buying that, it yet? Right. If you love Coca Cola and you're a Coca Cola drinker, you're drinking it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you were to take that money and put it more towards the R and D budget, a one for one swap, I think the ROI over the longer term would be a lot better. Yeah. Okay. Let's shift a little bit towards the other side, which is you know the small companies. Well, first, actually, let me ask you, why are there so few? Um, major tech, I guess you could say tech um, based CPG funds like yourself, you know, there's a million tech based investing in tech company funds. But there's very few that like yourselves. Why is that? What's kind of the challenge there for uh, investing in CPG? I think the tech not the tech aspect of our business uh, is very unique to circle up. Um, I think we're trying to do something that other investment firms aren't, even the way we tackle the technology platform isn't like a traditional tech, like a, a, a tech venture capital funds, right? One that's focused on technology. We're trying to systematize investing to some degree. Um, so I think the way we're doing it is a little bit differently. I think the, why there isn't a lot of early stage consumer venture capital funds taking the technology piece of it out. I think the this ultimate opportunity, right? People look at the Ubers and the Airbnbs and the Lyfts and the multi multi billion dollar platforms, mm-hmm. and you don't really have that in CPG. You're going to have a whole heck of a lot of hundred million dollar outcomes, but you're not going to have that unicorn. And to us, that's great. That's fine. We're happy to back a couple, a lot of these hundred million dollar outcomes because we're getting in early enough. Um, I think the other piece that's really hard for a consumer entrepreneur is there's not a Silicon Valley, right? For consumer entrepreneurs, there's not a very, very dense number of people um, and investors that are all in one place. I mean, we were talking the other day about that uh, without naming any sort of names, there are some funds that say, I don't travel to board meetings. Well, then you better make sure your board meetings are in your backyard. Mm -hmm. That doesn't consumer products. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah probably a very small percentage. How how many of the companies that you invest in are in, say, California within you know short distance? So within our portfolio, um, let's say like the like the Northern California area because mm-hmm. I don't LA is pretty decent pretty decent hike. There are three out of sixteen investments that we. Okay, 
And that was my my next question. And I'm not sure how many, if you can disclose everything, but uh, like how many investments are you making a, like maybe a month or so? Um, it depends pretty significantly. I mean, the fund's been around for, uh, we launched in September of 2017 and we have made 16 investments at this point. Okay. So maybe one a month at this point, roughly. That sounds about right. Okay. And so when you use the Helio platform, obviously you're identifying consumer brands and you're finding, you know, possibly opportunities. How much of it is the the product or idea and how much of it is the person running it? Like how much do you weigh each when you decide to make an investment? So we Helio right now on the equity fund fund is the equity fund is a discretionary fund, right? So we layer in human judgment above and beyond what Helio says. Mm-hmm. Helio uh, at this point is really good for helping us find companies. Uh, it helps us evaluate those companies. But at the end of the day, we have a layer of human investors that say, yes, I know Helio is saying this company is growing really, really well right now. But if I fast forward six years, do I really think the market opportunity is that significant? Yes, no. Um, so we use Helio for the for the finding of the ideas, for evaluating the ideas, but it is not the end-all decision maker. As far as the people side of it, we have not figured out a way to quantify the people side of things uh, through technology. We've right. tried. We've tried a couple of things. Um, we've tried looking at colleges or universities, level of education, um, all sorts of age. We looked at a bunch of different things and we have not found anything that correlates with future success. We'll keep looking now. Let me ask you this. And in my experience working with clients in our case, uh, how much is a basically indicator, you know, most of the companies that we work with in the CPG space, it is not this entrepreneur's first CPG. It's like their second or third or fourth. How often is that the case when you're investing in a company? You know, that's interesting. I would say most of our companies are first-time entrepreneurs. Really? Okay. The companies we've invested in. Hmm. Um, I'm just thinking through our portfolio right now. Uh, no, the, the primarily first-time entrepreneurs. Very often they'll have people on their board that are have been involved in some larger CPG companies or some uh, mature startup CPG companies. Um, they'll be surrounded by advisors and might have someone in operations who worked for another CPG company. But most of the founders are are first time entrepreneurs. And the founders themselves do, how often do they have a background in CPG or how often do they not? I would. And do you, do you care so much about that? Uh, not so much. Well, so I, as far as the number goes, I, I don't know that I can give it to you only because I'd have, not because I wouldn't want to disclose it, but only because I don't know it off the top. Yeah, of I understand. That's okay. Say the wrong thing. Um, does it matter if you have surrounded yourself by other smart people who have experience working the broker network and have experience dealing with trade spend, uh, and have experience on that side? I don't think so. Um, but you better make sure it is, it's a difficult industry to work in, right? It's competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you better make sure you have surrounded yourself by, by the right people if you don't have that experience yourself. But well, we don't, 
founder themselves don't have CPG experience, we're okay with that. In your experience, I mean, what there's so many people and so many new companies trying so many new ideas. What are kind of the main maybe couple traits that separate the great high growth CPG startups from the rest of them that just maybe it's not even that they're necessarily bad, but they can never really reach that high growth. You know, I think the biggest thing that I always focus on when thinking about a new investment um, and, and when I talk to the entrepreneurs, it's figuring out what the customer really values in you. You find your one product you own that product, you own that value proposition to that customer. There are times to expand vertically over time, but you really want your customer to understand you, understand your product and and identify the value in that. And I think one of the problems we see very often, and, and I mean, walking the floors of Expo this past week was a perfect example of it. There will be a nut-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, plant-based, throw six other adjectives on right. their bar, right? Like you're limiting the market that that you're addressing when you're throwing all those adjectives out there, right? Because mm-hmm. I might be gluten-free, I'm not, but I might be gluten-free. But I still want the product to taste pretty good. Um, and, and so I think when you try to be something that for everybody, that's a problem. When you identify what the customer really values in you, that's a, and pushing that, that's a great way to work with a consumer. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. As far as, so the investments you guys make in CPG, obviously CPG encompasses a lot, but looking through your, at least uh, on your website of the, you know, you talked about the 300 companies, it seemed like the majority were in the grocery space. Is that true? Are you mostly investing in food? It depends if you, so we've had a couple of different iterations. On the equity front, I actually, the equity business, the $125 million platform, I think we have we have pet represented in there. We actually have quite a few beauty companies in there. Mm-hmm. Um, beverage uh, and and food, I think, are the big categories. But uh, if it's fifty percent food and bev, and then the other fifty percent in the other category, sounds about right. Okay, and um, as far as like grocery and because obviously a lot of people have been, you know, there's kind of a debate of. Will retail fully go away? Will grocery stores go away? But then the other side says, well, that's probably further away than we think. What are your thoughts on that? Like, will retail become irrelevant with, you know, really fast delivery times? Or what do you think is kind of the future? I don't think food retail is going away. I think you are going to continue to have the the non-differentiated grocery stores shrink. And this has been a trend, by the way, the number of grocery stores shrinking has been a trend that's been going on for the last 20 years, right? Initially it was Walmart, then it was on online delivery. And now it's actually, I think more what the consumer wants, more consumer driven. But I think the very undifferentiated grocery store that offers the same products that are brought on by those CPG companies that we had talked about before, um, the old incumbent CPG companies, I don't think those companies are gonna last. I think we're going to continue to see grocery move towards experiential retail, Um, not to the degree that the Apple story is clearly, but um, I mean, we've seen an insurgence of of coffee, uh, coffee pop-ups. We've seen the grocery store push heavy into meal kits. And I think that's really interesting, giving the customer something a little bit different 
um, that they weren't able to experience before. So I think grocery's here to stay, um, moving more towards the fresh category. We're, we have a great playbook with Whole Foods as far as what they've done with the perishable side of things. Um, I think that's really where grocery's going to continue to migrate. Um, I would be surprised if online doesn't continue to grow, which will just continue to accelerate those non-differentiated players uh, going out of business. So speaking of Whole Foods, how much yep. do you guys think about Amazon? And A lot. Okay, because <laughs> they're kind of everywhere, yeah. obviously. Yeah. They're expanding constantly. They're you know starting Amazon Go stores now. They said they're going to roll out thousands. We'll see. Even on their own website, we've had clients of our own where they're competing now against private label Amazon products on Amazon.com, which is obviously a losing battle. So yeah, how much how much do you think about Amazon? We think about Amazon on a lot, in part because our our portfolio companies think about Amazon a lot. Um, they want to help think about the right strategy to work with Amazon or the right strategy not to work with Amazon. Um, they want to make sure their their product is represented appropriately on Amazon. I think this is my personal opinion. I think not working with Amazon, you, there's a certain amount of time you could do that, right? When you are sub a couple million in sales and you've got a strong D2C business, um, you've got, you want to own that customer relationship. I totally get that. I respect that. Um, over time, as companies grow and mature, someone's going to be putting your product on Amazon. Period. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you rather it be you and you can control the pricing and you can control the messaging? Right. Uh, so I, our companies think about it a lot. We think about it a lot. Um, we think Amazon's here to stay. And uh, I personally think figuring out the right way to work with Amazon is essential. If for your investments, how much do you value when a company um, already has retail relationships versus not? Is that a big deal for you? Or do you maybe have connections and you can help companies that might not have those connections already? Meaning a company that's entirely D2C versus a company that is... Um, like, yes, selling in Whole Foods or something already. Yeah, you know, we've got companies in our portfolio that started as 100% D2C and have moved into the retail channel. Um, we have companies that in our portfolio that I would say are 95% retail. So we're kind of agnostic between the two um, as long as they have a growth strategy to continue to move forward. But yes, we do have relationships um, that, that we can introduce, uh, that we can introduce some of the founders to. And as far as the D2C, um, you know, it sounds great, right? Obviously you have higher margins, you don't have any middleman, but how difficult is it in your experience to, you know, build a brand, get people to come to your site and purchase from you directly? Like, I guess what I'm asking is, how frequently do you see someone, a company, be successful at that? How Or how often is it just a losing battle and they have to go to retail or Amazon, et cetera? I think the cost of doing business for a pure D2C company has gone up pretty materially in the past year. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking about just the, the cost of acquiring new customers. Um, so we are hearing, and the, the companies that we're talking to more and more are that I think a year and a half ago would have been pure D2C businesses. I want to own the customer. I've got this great product. I've got this great database of, of clients. Um, 
thinking about moving to retail earlier because it's actually a cheaper way for some of these companies to get eyeballs on their products now. Right. So uh, I think it is, we're seeing a shift right now. Um, we're seeing a pretty sizable shift moving from pure D to C to focusing on both channels a little bit more aggressively. You spoke on owning the first party data there. For a second, when you sell in retail, obviously, you know, you don't get access to a lot of that data. Do you think that's going to change? Do you think retailers are going to start giving people much more access to data? Or do you think it'll stay where they don't basically tell you very much? Hey, ooh, um, I don't know. If you have the Kraft Heinzes of the world who have no doubt been asking for this data and pushing back pretty materially with a rather heavy foot. Um, I'm not sure that a small early stage company will be able to do any better trying to get their hands on this information. A lot of the companies have it, right? Kroger has a heck of a loyalty program. And so they, they get information on who's buying what with whom how often the customer, a specific customer is buying someone's product. Mm -hmm. But I, I think they, they, to my knowledge, have not been aggressive as far as allowing their partners um, to, to access this. And uh, one topic actually that I didn't bring up when I was discussing Helio with you, but I wanted to ask about was, and I'm not sure if you guys have thought about this or not, I'm sure you probably have, uh, but you know, you have so much data and you can see opportunities and emerging companies, but wouldn't you also be able to see possible opportunities that are there? There's just no one really filling them. And could you, you know, create your own or somehow, you know, incubate a way to create a new business for that opportunity that no one is tapping into? Uh, meaning create a bunch of little mini entrepreneurs within Circle Up? Right. Uh, you know, we haven't, to be honest, it's, I don't, gosh, I, to my knowledge, it's not something that's been discussed here. How we do use their data, though, is to work with the companies that are in our portfolio to try to address just that. Um, we have a, a salty snack company uh, in our portfolio that was looking for a line extension, and we did a deep dive with them into the importance of organic, the price positioning, where the product should launch, um, how differentiated the product needs to be using this data. Um, so at this point, uh, we are, we're focused on helping the entrepreneurs develop their business strategically to use the data. But, um, and I think that's certainly for the near to medium term, how we'll be using it. When is it the right time for a company to kind of expand their product line versus focus more on just you know, diving deep and nailing the one product that they have? It sounds like a cop-out answer, but I think it depends a lot on the market size of that single product. Okay. Right? Yeah, if I mean, that's a back, valid if answer. If we go back to that that, that very specific keto, grain-free, gluten-free, uh, vegan, plant-based bar, you only have a finite amount of customers that are going to be interested in that. So you probably want to nail it but then look at the gluten, paleo, grain-free, plant-based cereal soon after that. Um, I, so I think it all depends on the market size. Okay. 
I mean, you have answered pretty much all the questions I had. I've been trying to find something that you could maybe not answer, <laughs> but uh, this has been great. Um, what, what's kind of the future for Circle Up? Are you just going to continue what you're doing now? Do you have anything in the future planning that you, no one's talked about yet? I guess you probably can't talk about it anyways. Oh, but. Uh, well, it's not that no one has talked about it, but um, we are actually planning on launching a systematic fund in uh, 2000 and sometime at the uh, beginning of next year, which will, like I mentioned before, we are a discretionary fund uh, where, so we have a human overlay above our investment decisions. This will be using data and pure data to try to drive, a, to build a portfolio uh, within the CPG space. Do and you, thing that you... no one else is doing. I think it's super exciting what, we, uh, what it could mean. Um, and I'm really excited to kind of continue to see the team build it out. I know I, I remember um, Chamath, I don't know how to pronounce his last name from Facebook. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but he had a fund that was very similar, that was very, very, very data focused. Do you guys look to them at all uh, for kind of ideas or inspiration at all? I don't know. We are really lucky in that we have a pretty strong network here. So we look to everybody, honestly, like anyone who we can bring in or we could set up a call with that has a successful investment background, successful CPG background. One of the things I love about Circle Up is there is a level of humility here that we know we don't know much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, that we're building something new and different and really exciting. And if we can borrow ideas from pretty much anybody, we're happy to do it. That's the best attitude to have. Well, this has been uh, great. Is there, if anybody wants, well, if there's any CPG companies out there looking to maybe get some help or reach out to you guys, what's the best way they could do that? That'd be amazing. And they can email me directly at khowland, H-O-W-L-A-N-D, at circleup.com. And uh, do you have a Twitter or anything where someone could follow you on a public profile if they're not in CPG? I do. It's uh, Karen Howland, too. Karen Howland too. All right. I will put all of those links in the show notes for everybody and anything else discussed. Karen, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Hey, David here again. Before you go, thanks again to Karen for doing this interview and thank you to Circle Up. This was great. I had a great time. It was really fun talking to Karen and, uh, I thought she provided a lot of valuable insights, so definitely check out Circle Up and check out Karen if you're interested. And uh, if you made it all the way through to this point, could you please leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you listen on? It really, really helps us out, and it only takes you a few seconds. And uh, if you know someone in the CPG space that you think could learn a lot from this interview, please feel free to share it. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week.